Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I had to really reinvent who I was in many ways because my identity had been stripped away. I thought I was going to be married to Chris for the rest of my life. I've been with him since uni and then suddenly he is not there and my future's completely disappeared. Hello and welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas. And we're on a mission to help you achieve your goals. We're all about sharing the secrets of the world's most innovative and pioneering successful women. Hear their uplifting stories and practical advice right here. Yes, right here. And if you're enjoying this podcast, then why not sign up for our newsletter at hello at don'tstopusnow.co and keep listening for this week's latest episode. Well, hello and greetings. We've got a really unique episode for you today, and I'm pretty excited actually, because we've been asked to do this since we launched the podcast nearly three years ago. Well, you might be excited, but I'm a bit nervous, to be honest. Oh, well, you shouldn't be. Now, listeners, if you haven't already guessed, following lots of requests, we're finally going to share our own career stories and journeys with you. And today we're kicking off alphabetically, and you're going to hear all about Claire's extraordinary career and journey. Yes, so this episode's a little bit different. Whilst you'll still hear both our voices, this time, not surprisingly, only Greta is asking the questions. Of course, I'm answering them. Yeah, it would sound quite funny if you ended up saying to yourself, so Claire, tell me about yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so you just get to hear me asking questions. And look, it was so much fun. Seriously though, Claire, you've really had such a remarkable career today and I can't wait to share this with listeners. So whether it's learning about how Claire received an award from the UK Prime Minister as one of Britain's People of the Year at the age of just 26, how a tragedy changed the course of Claire's life, what it was like working for Google and why they're so innovative – And finally, why Claire left her plum job on the Google Australia leadership team for a whole new career. Well, I guess that does sound a bit interesting. (laughs) Absolutely, it does. So without further ado, dear listeners, I'm proud and excited to introduce you to my super smart and inspiring co-host, Claire Hatton. Well, hello, co-host. This feels strange, doesn't it? Yeah, it feels really, really weird. So here we are. And We've decided, because so many people have asked us to share our own stories, that we're going to interview each other. And guess what? It's my turn to start by interviewing you. I know. I'm feeling actually quite nervous. I'm not sure why. (laughs) Well, I'm feeling nervous too, because I want to make sure I do a really good job and you're not here by my side, so to speak, to ask great questions and follow-up questions with me. It's me on my own asking questions and you on your own giving answers. It's true, but, you know, I can give you prompts. (laughs) 
<laughs> Thanks for that. Thanks for that. Well, okay, listeners, we should stop dilly-dallying and I think we should dive in. And we're going to sort of ask a lot of the same questions we ask the people that sometimes we're meeting for the very first time. So, Claire, on that note, one way or the way we like to start podcast interviews is to ask you, if you were meeting someone at a dinner party for the first time, how do you explain to them what you do today? Well, you know, it's funny, isn't it? Because I always think to myself, I'm so glad I don't have to answer that question. Yeah. And, now, <laughs> and now you're asking it of me. So it really depends on who I'm sitting next to. But I think in general, what I would say is that I have a portfolio career, which means I wear quite a few different hats. I'm a non-executive director sitting on two boards of really interesting companies. I co-founded a innovative leadership development company with you <laughs> for Potential Labs. I am an executive coach and I'm also a podcaster. Yeah, funny that. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So okay. that's probably how I would explain myself. Good, yeah. good. And how, what sort of reaction do you get? I guess you haven't had to test drive that answer. Not recently, because I haven't really been out for dinner very much, meeting new people. But the reaction I get is, I think it just depends on which bit of that portfolio people are interested in and they go down that route. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, as we do with all of our other guests, I'd like to take you right back now. And, you know, we can hear that English accent. Tell us about your childhood and where you grew up. Yeah, well, I grew up in a very small little village called Gussage St. Michael, yeah. which many people think is Gusset, but it's not. It's Gussage St. Michael. And it's in the south of England in Dorset. And I'm one of four. I'm the eldest. And I grew up in a really loving, crazy, beautiful family. It's funny because I have only ever lived in cities and I wonder, you know, how do you think growing up in, and I've heard about Gussage St. Michael, I've been there, it's tiny. It's like got one tiny street, it feels like. It's mm. really small. How do you think growing up in such a remote, it feels remote anyway, place yeah. affected you? Well, there's a couple of things. I think as a kid, I was massively into horses, so it was amazing that I had all that countryside around. But I also, as I got older, got really frustrated in the fact that I didn't have my independence and I couldn't get out. So I think it probably made me more desperate to get my independence. And I'm quite an independent person, as you will know. So that was a bit challenging as a teenager, particularly. Before you got your license and things like that. Absolutely. Yeah. Because I had to really rely on my poor mum, who was ferrying everyone around. But now I look back on it and I think, oh my God, I was so lucky. It's such a beautiful, beautiful part of the world. I could be out and not come back for eight hours and my parents didn't need to worry. And I have a real affiliation with nature. Mm. How would you describe the young Claire? I was always quite entrepreneurial. I started earning money at quite a young age. I think I was about 10. You know, I had quite a number of different jobs because I realized that having money allowed me to do things that I wanted to do. And I wasn't restricted by my parents, for example. I was one of four. So our house was crazy. So I had to get on and do my own thing. So. Can I just jump in and say, what what was it that you did at 10 to mm -hmm. earn money? Oh, I did a number of things. I washed cars. 
I mowed my dad's lawn and asked him for money. (laughs) I did the paper round. And later, a few years later, I started actually making horse clothing. (laughs) That sounds weird, doesn't it? Things like numbers that go under saddles. And uh, I designed my own leg bandages that were really easy to put on and off. And I used to sell those. Wow. That is entrepreneurial. Mm. And what did you think you wanted to be? Because you were obviously so into horses and things like that. What did you think you were going to do when you were grown up? Oh, I knew I wasn't going to be in horses. I knew I was going to be in business. My dad is an entrepreneur and he had set up his own cleaning company, actually. He used to talk to me from a very early age about the business. So it kind of became second nature. So I actually had decided quite early, and I'm really not sure why, that I wanted to go into marketing. And that's exactly what you went on to do. You went to uni and I think you did you studied business, yeah? Business right? uh, with a specialty in marketing. Ah, yeah, cool. Yeah. And then when you came to graduate, mm. could you tell us a bit about how you came to choose which job you would take? Yes, well, you, this is really about the priorities of being a uni student. <laughs> but I had four different offers when I left university, but two of them were really compelling to me because they were both graduate management programs, so they sort of fast-tracked you. One was with Bass Brewers, which is the largest brewer in the UK. Very, you know, actually at the time it had a really good brand. And then the other was British Airways. I had always wanted to travel And so the way I actually made the decision once I'd been given the offers was I kind of rationalized that, well, Bass Brewers, I can get free beer. British Airways, I can get free flights and free beer on the flights. (laughs) So it really made a lot of sense to go with British Airways. And it was a great decision. When you put it like that, it's totally compelling. Absolutely. (laughs) And... It seems like you had some amazing experiences at British Airways and you were transferred overseas after just a couple of years. You were still pretty Mm. young, weren't you? Like mid-20s or something? Oh, no, early. I think I was 23 when when I went to Kuala Lumpur for my first posting. Wow. Can you remember how you reacted and felt at that time? You know, those first days walking into wherever the office in Kuala Lumpur was that you were going to. Yeah, it was in a really dingy, dingy airport office. Right. I mean, it really was, there was a terrible shared toilet. It was very dingy. And I felt really excited. I think, you know, the naivety of being young, you know, I was relatively confident So I walked in with a, you know, really excited and then really quickly realized how much I didn't know. But somehow I managed to muddle through and I, you know, I had a really interesting first experience because obviously I was a young, blonde, single woman. I'd been sent to Kuala Lumpur to be a customer service manager at the airport. So that really meant that you ran the shift when an aircraft came in and went out. So everything from check-in to load balance to getting the flight plans, all of that kind of thing. You know, that was a lot of responsibility. But I remember that I think it must have been a couple of weeks in and I was running a shift and we had a late passenger check-in and we had to get some extra meals. And so I said to one of the guys who was a contracting agent, I said, could you please order two more meals? And he just ignored me. And then I said it again because I thought, well, maybe he just didn't hear me. And it slowly started to dawn on me that this guy was not taking orders from a young woman. It was really quite confronting. And so 
what I decided to do in the moment, because it, I was really under pressure because we had to get the plane going on, on, on time, I said to one of my male colleagues, could you please tell this guy that we need two more meals? So he did. And the other guy went off and did what he was told. And then when the plane had gone, you know, I was really calm. When the plane had gone, I took this guy aside and I said, you will never, ever work on a British Airways plane again. And I will not accept that. And then I called their supervisor and said, do not have this guy on our shifts. And, you know, I didn't do it in a, a way that would make him lose face, but I did it in a very firm way and I knew it would get around, certainly that, you know, I wasn't putting up with this and it never happened again. I find that really phenomenal. You know, there you are, you've grown up, one could argue, in a sheltered village. Now, I know that isn't necessarily the case. You can no, still be a is. tearaway teenager, but yeah. but the village itself, and there you are, 23 in Kuala Lumpur, and you have the presence of mind to think and do something like that, which is very emotionally mature and experienced, I think. What was it about the moment or the scenario or your previous experiences that enabled you to do that? Well, I think the first thing was British Airways were amazing because before they posted me, they gave me cultural training. Right. Which actually, even today, there's not that many companies that do that. But so it gave me a really good sense of how a person might react if I were to call them out in front of other people, for example. So I knew I couldn't do that. But I think the other thing was that I've always been brought up to feel quite strong in myself. Like I never felt as a woman, I should be treated differently, even though, you know, there definitely have been many times where I have been, but I don't tend to put up with it. So I think it was just, I knew what I was meant to do culturally I knew it was, I wasn't going to put up with it, but I also wasn't going to, you know, make other people feel so uncomfortable that it would create problems for other people. Yeah. No, it's really amazing and such a mature call to kind of be able to think, you know, in a day where there was obviously quite a bit of stress as well. Now you went on to work in multiple cities around Asia and, you know, not exactly, again, the norm for your peer group back, say, from Cardiff University, the graduates there, you, for memory, spent over 10 years in different places in in Asia. But I wanted to focus on how Indonesia has been a, a really big epicenter of some major events in your life. Can you tell us how you came to be known as the Angel of Jakarta? Ah, oh, yes. Um, <laughs> and what you were doing in yeah. Jakarta. Well, so when I was 26, I was posted to be the country manager for British Airways in Indonesia. So what that meant was that I was running the commercial operation and had the airport reporting into me. And that was just at the beginning of the Asian financial crisis. And in Jakarta and many other uh, Southeast Asian countries, there was really big economic challenges. And in Indonesia, there was a dictator, Suharto, who'd been there for over 30 years. And there was the beginnings of uprising. And so what happened, the reason I became the angel of Jakarta was that there were massive riots in Jakarta in May of 1998. My team and I evacuated over 2,000 people out of Indonesia by bringing in an empty aircraft from London positioning it in Kuala Lumpur and just going backwards and forwards and taking people out. Now, you make that sound sort of sort of fairly come day, normal, everyday sort of thing. But in actual fact, you're about the only airline 
flying. No, we weren't the only airline flying, but we were one of the only airlines with a ticket office open in the city, which was where I was. And the reason for that was it was actually pretty dangerous because there were tanks sort of in front of the building, not for us, <laughs> I hasten to add, but because it was the World Trade Center in Jakarta. So most airlines had closed. So you had to go to the airport, which was completely and utterly crazy. To get there. To get there. So we had queues out of the door. In the city office there. In the city office, yeah. And of course, it wasn't the Indonesians who called you the angel of Jakarta. It was sort of on the front pages of all the British newspapers. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And then what did that lead to? Well, that led to, it was very leading embarrassing. Question here. Leading question it here, was, listeners. Yeah, that's a really leading question. First of all, it was really embarrassing. I mean, I didn't want to be called the angel of Jakarta. And your mum gave the press photos of you. Oh, terrible. And that red (laughs) jacket was awful. And my fiancé was stalked by press, as were my parents, outside the door, you know, and the press were actually following Chris down the street. Wow. It was really crazy. But the question you asked me was what happened? Well, in recognition of evacuating so many people, the British Prime Minister, who was Tony Blair at the time, honoured me with one of about 10 that year, Persons of the Year 1998. Wow. So you're a Person of the Year for Britain. Yes. Amazing. Amazing. So fast forward a few years, you decide to leave British Airways and do an MBA did you actually leave and sever the relationship with British Airways to do the MBA? or I actually did stay with British Airways. I took a sabbatical because I wanted to keep my options open. And then when I finished my MBA, I had seven different offers. One of them was coming back to the UK with British Airways in sort of a senior strategy position, which I, at that moment in time, I chose not to stay in the travel industry. And the reason for that, particularly the airline industry, was because I'd done so many cases in my MBA studies and every single case sort of looked at it and said, this industry is just going to be about cost cutting in the future. I could see the writing on the wall. And, you know, when you're constantly cost cutting, it takes the joy out of what you're doing. Yeah. So I really felt like I wanted to find a different industry where I could be an industry that was growing. So you went back to Singapore, if I'm not mistaken, Mm. and joined a management consultancy called Maricon and working out of there. And then Indonesia became another sort of center point or crucible of your life. Not that much later when tragedy struck. Mm. Yeah. Well, actually, I'd left consulting because I hated it so much. I I managed to do a year. (laughs) And I went back actually into travel, but into a space that was growing, which was the digital side of travel, online online travel. travel. And yeah, very sadly, the Bali bomb happened. And very unfortunately, my husband happened to be there on a, a rugby trip and very sadly died. And how old were you then? 31. Right. That must be... You know, it's hard to fathom and really understand the impact, obviously, that that would have had. And you weren't in Bali at all at the time, were you? No, we lived in Singapore, but I was actually in Sydney for work. But I flew up to Bali. And how do you keep working? Like you're there in an online travel business, Zuji. How do you recover and get back to work? Or how did that work for you? Well, you know, I took about, I think it was about six weeks off. I had an amazing boss who fought for me to allow me to have that time off. 
But even when I went back, yeah, I really wasn't functioning very well. After about a year, I just decided that life was too short and so I was going to quit. To be really honest with you, I... Uh, yeah, it was hard. I bet it was. I mean, yeah, it was really it's amazing hard. that you actually managed to turn up every day. What I am most blown away that you have been able to turn this extraordinarily sad moment and move forward and literally onwards and upwards without diminishing or without um, forgetting Chris. Mm. How did you have the presence of mind and the courage and the fortitude to still have such a positive outlook on life going forward? Well, to be honest, I think it's my nature. I think I am, you know, a positive person. So I do tend to see the positive in things. But I think also there are a number of factors. One was incredible friends and family who supported me through it all without judgment, which was just amazing. The second thing was I actually, I did a lot of work on myself. I had to really reinvent who I was in many ways because my identity had been stripped away. I thought I was going to be married to Chris for the rest of my life. And you'd been with him since uni. Yeah, I've been with him since uni. And then suddenly he is not there and my future's completely disappeared. I mean, I, I didn't know where I was going to live in the world. I I spent a number of years just searching and working out where I wanted to be in the world and what I wanted to do. It wasn't like overnight I could do it. It was a journey, but a very important journey. Yeah, and it's not a short journey. No, it's still it's still it's going true. on. Yeah, you know? exactly. What's your advice to other people, you know, who have experienced bereavement with someone really close to them mm. like that? I think my advice is to be kind to yourself and acknowledge that grieving is a process and it's often a roller coaster and to just be kind to yourself. But you, there is a moment when you do have to choose. And I, I remember the moment I chose to sort of rather than curling up into a corner, into a dark corner, you know, and not operating in the world, which was very appealing, I have to say, for a certain amount of time versus getting up, getting on with life, taking lessons that are positive from it, and I guess making a difference to others, which for me has been important part of recovery. You know, you, you do have to consciously make that choice, is, was my experience anyway. I'm going to take it back to Korea now, but it's such a significant and inspiring part of your story, Claire, because of who you are today and knowing that you've been through that, I think it makes it all the more inspiring. How do you think your attitude to your career, not like in the moment, but mm. fast forward some years and you were sort of ready to kind of get back into a career, did that experience change what you wanted out of your career? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think it just, you know, I grew up really quickly. I'm actually incredibly grateful for that because I – probably reached conclusions that people who are sort of in their 40s and 50s reach after experience in my 30s. And hallelujah, I think that's really added to my happiness. So I think the way I look at life is that it can be short and 
It's really about finding your full potential and just going for it and having the courage to go for it because life is so short and things that really matter are the people around you and the things that you do for others. And how did that affect, you know, did it manifest in different career choices? Because that sort of is more life that you're talking about there. How did it affect career choices, if at all? Well, it definitely came to the forefront when I joined Google. Well, let's start with Google. Yeah. Okay, so we fast forward a few years. You end up in Australia. Yes. And Google offers you a job. Yes, after I've been here a few years. Yeah. And it's quite early days for Google. Yeah, it's 2007. So Google in Australia hasn't been going that long. There's 80 people in the office. Just for context, I think there's about 1,300 now. So I basically got tapped on the shoulder by what turned out to be then became one of my team, Angela. Thank you, Angela, if you're listening. Best decision of my life, I think, because I was a customer. And I wasn't actually that interested at first because I wanted to stay in the travel industry. I was in travel technology at the time. But Google came and headhunted me to start their travel business. So setting up a team of industry experts who could really consult to boards, CEOs, C-level, to help them understand what the customer's doing digitally and to leverage digital products. So it was super, super exciting. You were at Google post being in airlines and then the online travel technology biz sort of of sector. Mm. And here it is. It turns out in hindsight, we can look back and say one of the world's most innovative companies. You know, what were some of the, the ways they did things or their processes that really jumped out at you when you were new to the organization that would have helped it innovate and become such a leader, do you think? Yeah, well... There were a number of things. I mean, the first thing is the quality of the people is outstanding. I had never worked with such smart people. And, you know, my ethos ever since then, and I wish I'd had it before, is really to recruit people who are smarter than you. That's what happened at Google. And so you had incredible people. And then they were very good at allowing you as a leader to empower your people you know, so you use those smarts. That was the first thing. The second thing was, and I think Michelle Guthrie talked about this when we interviewed her. Okay. Well, she was on the show a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, absolutely. And the transparency, it blew me away how much information you were told internally. You could access everything through the intranet. Communication was a massive part. So everybody was going along on the same path and had the same level of information it felt. That made a big difference to being able to empower people, to allowing people to solve problems, to trusting, massive trust, because you knew so much. That was the second thing. The third thing was, you know, obviously there were multiple different stages over the seven years that I was at Google and Google was very adept at adapting through those stages. So, you know, processes and systems changed radically as I was there. And it, you know, obviously when I started, it was scrappy as anything (laughs) and you could do anything and you could, you know, you had 20% projects. And, and when I left, you know, it was much more like a mean machine, you know, it was more process driven, very quarterly driven, which a lot of big tech companies are. Yeah. No, that's fascinating. And I don't think I've heard you talk in that 
sort of way anyway about the sort of the transparency and the communications and how that in and of itself really fed into the ability to innovate. But it makes sense, as you say, you know, if you can all be on the same page and you're all really crystal clear about what the goals are. Yeah. Well, it's sort of like you, you've you got these guide rails. So you know all the information, you know where you're heading because you've got a very strong purpose, you're a pretty strong strategy, and then you let people create and do things. And it's amazing what smart people, what actually what anybody can come up with if you allow them to do that. Yeah. Some years on, you then decide after the seven years, you're on the leadership team. You are sitting pretty, Claire Hatton and Google, mm. in one of probably the most coveted jobs. You decide to leave. How come? Yeah, I know. Crazy, huh? <laughs> well, look, it wasn't a quick decision. It took me a year to reach the decision and another year to exit by design. Because look, leaving a company like Google was a very big decision. And I didn't take it lightly because what an incredible opportunity. And I, you know, there were massive parts of my job that I loved, but there was also part of me that felt like I wasn't, you know, if, and this is a test I tend to do on myself. Like if I die tomorrow, will I be proud of what I've achieved? And I thought to myself, if I die tomorrow and I've spent the last seven years selling online ads, am I going to be really proud of that? Now, I've done other things, but really that's my legacy. And I thought, no, that's just not how I see my legacy. And so I had also been on a journey. I'd studied neuroscience to start with, which was phenomenal. And then that led me to being a coach. And then I started coaching internally and externally at Google. And then I started teaching internally different ways to lead. And then I thought, oh my, this is amazing. I can make a really big impact here. So that's what I ended up. I ended up deciding that I could make more impact outside of Google than I could make inside of Google. You are really passionate about the brain and neuroscience. And was it pretty clear cut then that that's what you would do when you left Google to start leadership well, development business? I wouldn't say it was clear cut. It took me quite a long time to get to that point and to really work out what it was I was going to do. And I worked with, an, with a coach to do that. But once I had decided that, yes, that's what I was going to do, I was super excited about it. And I tested my ideas internally and they'd gone really, really well. And so I thought, well, you know, I've done it at Google, so maybe I can go out and sell it to other companies. And, you know, I was incredibly lucky. There was obviously strategy, but I literally left Google in December. And in February, they asked me to come back as a vendor to roll out a program teaching leaders how to coach across the globe. And for four years, I trotted off around the world, also in partnership with lots of other amazing coaches, delivering a groundbreaking program. What an amazing first client. Congratulations for that because that's amazing, isn't it? And yeah. Full, Full Potential Labs was born. And then, of course, we met and we sort of merged our different programs. Mine were focusing on, on women's leadership, but we still do mostly work with technology companies in Australia, but also internationally. What are your observations about for those listening who might want to work in a tech company, be they 
you know, a coder or be they a commercial sort of side of the business. You know, what are your observations about what it takes to succeed in a technology company? Well, I think it's what it actually takes to succeed in what will be the future of work. Actually, it's not just technology companies. I think it's very much about your ability to adapt. You know, change is constant. You have to be resilient to change and you have to learn to be resilient to change. That's the first thing. The second thing is, I think, your ability to problem solve and be able to think creatively is really important. And the third thing, I think, is how you interact with others, relationships. It's interesting, you know, I was talking to a very senior person that I coach who works in a technology company. Yeah, a very big, fast moving. Big, fast, super fast moving, like so fast moving, faster moving than Google. And we were talking about our days at Google and how you get things done in tech companies. And tech companies tend to be quite matrixed. You have multiple different influences, but sometimes you have multiple different bosses because you're matrixed in. Yeah. But it's very much about relationships. And what we're observing is in this company that she's working in now, how people find it very hard to work out who to influence in terms of who's impactful in terms of their stakeholders. And she said, well, you know, I just see that as just obvious, but it's actually not obvious. It's actually a skill. It's about relationships. It's about influence. It's about understanding who has impact. So I think that is a really important skill set to have. Yeah, that's so interesting. So we've got the podcast, Full Potential Labs, and you mentioned at the outset, you know, your board roles. How do you juggle all of that? I work out what I want to achieve and focus on those things. I use, I think we talked about this in our how-to episode on managing time. I use the Covey matrix, which is where I look at what's important and urgent and not important and not urgent uh, in that two by two, which I personally find really, really useful. But the other thing I do is I look forward and, you know, there are, because of board work, the way board work works is that you have, you know, set board meetings and committee meetings. And so, you know, 12 months ahead, actually, what your commitments are. So I, I work sort of on a week by week basis as well, depending on which hat I'm wearing. And speaking of board commitments, Mm. you know, what do you think's been the hardest thing or is the hardest thing switching from an executive role, the hands-on role Mm. to a board role? Yeah. Well, I think it is very different. You do have to kind of step back and really be on the balcony and really understand what your role is as a board director, which is really about governance, risk, and strategy and culture. And so it's not your job to do, it's your job to ask great questions, to listen intently, to help support the executives. But it is difficult sometimes not to jump in. You know, I'm not going to say it's not. And there are different moments in the journey of a company where you have to sort of think, should I be jumping in more? And, you know, there are some times where you should be jumping in more yeah. and other times where you really need to pull back. And COVID-19, I think, is a great example where almost unanimously across the boards, plural, across the board, so to speak, 
directors were meeting suddenly way more frequently. And at the very beginning of the pandemic and the shutdowns around the world, I think directors were much more involved. Absolutely. I mean, you know, on the travel company board I'm on, we have still been meeting every two weeks because it's dire, you know? So yeah, it just really depends. But I think that the main difference is that you're not there to do, you're there to, you know, for the governance, the risk, the strategy and the culture. Well, I'm conscious of time and, you know, we've been talking, it's been so, such fun actually to have this conversation with you because in some ways it's so unnatural, but then in other ways it's how we do a podcast. But now, okay, the questions we ask all of our guests. Yes. What advice would you give your 30-year-old self? Well, of course, my 30-year-old self didn't know what was coming. so Literally around the corner. Yeah, yeah. literally. So I would say to my 30-year-old self, you are so much stronger than you think you are. You can get through anything and keep seeing the positive side of life. I love that. And she really does, listeners. I can testify that she is a very inspiring, positive person. Thank you. Well, fantastic, Claire Hatton. This has been a real novelty and an amazing privilege for me to get to talk to you. We'd normally ask you, how do listeners find out more about you and all the things you're involved with? So, take it away. Well, I think the best place is LinkedIn. So please do link in with me. Just search for Claire Hatton. Obviously, there's our Don't Stop Us Now website, which is www.dontstopusnow.co. And also, you know, don't forget to sign up for our email on the website to receive little nuggets from us. Yeah, that's probably about it. Well, Claire, it's been a joy. Thank you so much. And can't wait to uh, listen to it as I'm driving along in my car. It'll <laughs> be so weird. Yeah, it will be. Well, thank you. know what? You are such a good interviewer. Honestly, being on the other side of the mic, it's fascinating, but you're so good. So thank you. Oh, shucks. Thank you. All right. Well, that's all. Bye, everybody. Bye. I just love your attitude and thirst for life, Claire. It really is inspiring, particularly after everything you've been through. You know, your repeated choice to have a positive outlook is really something I try to emulate. Well, thanks. And how did it feel listening to yourself? Well, awkward, I guess. (laughs) But I can't wait now to turn the tables on you and start asking you all those questions. Uh Uh-oh. So stay tuned, listeners, because if you think I've done quite a few different jobs, you ain't heard nothing yet. (laughs) I think you must have the most varied career history of anyone I know. Well, I have always loved new challenges. So yes, I have had my fair share of variety. That's for sure. Indeed you have. Well, that's this episode done and dusted. Stay tuned for next week's mini episode. And then I'm so happy to say you can hear Greta's story the week after that. Okay, now you're making me nervous. Have a great week, everyone. Stay safe and ciao for now. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 